Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. So today's show, um, we're talking about kitties. Kitties! uh, We love kitties. Kitties. We We both have kitties. Tina has one. I have two. But they're in New York and I'm in Milwaukee. But I'm cat sitting one. His name is Paris. He's lovely. Paris? Paris. I know that part. Yeah. Um, we love cats, um, so that's part of the reason for doing this episode, but it's also our 20th episode, um, so we wanted to do something fun that was enjoyable for us, um, but rather than just sort of talking about cats in art, and we will do that, we'll give you some examples of, of cats in art history, um, but we also want to talk about what sort of makes today's cat culture so different from how cats have been represented and perceived uh, in, in different historical contexts. We also want to go beyond just the questions of cats in art, um, how cats have changed in art over history, but also just talk about how cats and the sort of contemporary uh, enthusiasm for cats and cat videos, what this phenomenon can kind of tell us about art in general, about visual culture, and about the kind of fluid boundaries uh, between those two things today. To start, we're going to go back to the 17th century uh, and look at a work by the painter Abraham Teniers um, called Barbershop with Monkeys and Cats. Once again, uh, you can always find uh, images that we're discussing on our website, which is arthistory.today. What we see in this painting is a rather playful scene of what the title sounds like. Uh, Monkeys working in a barbershop kind of quaffing and um, grooming these cats that are seated in a couple of chairs. You also have a sort of Puss in Boots uh, cat coming in through the doorway in the background. Um, This type of scene, which it seems like a perfect precursor to the dogs playing poker. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Actually, uh, my boyfriend's parents' house they have a similar painting of cats playing poker, and it's called Feeding the Kitty, uh, and it's in the bathroom, and I love that painting. Um, (laughs) So it definitely fits into that genre, um, which is a a, a sort of long-standing genre that was very popular in the 17th century called singerie. Singerie is basically kind of scenes showing monkeys doing playful things, often things that humans would normally do. And the person who was, uh, the artist who was most closely associated with Sangerie was uh, the painter David Teniers the Younger, who was actually Abraham Teniers' older brother. Teniers' image of the barbershop, uh, it's a satirical kind of image. So we have animals that are anthropomorphized, and they're sort of mocking the habits of different groups, different classes of individuals. Within the genre of singerie, you often see monkeys representing sort of well-to-do people, like you'll you'll see a lot of art critics or connoisseurs represented by monkeys. There's a, a whole book dedicated to this genre um, 
by an art historian named Jansen, who actually wrote one of the kind of canonical art historical survey texts. Uh, I actually have my mom's copy from the 70s of, of Jansen's History of Art. Um, anyway, uh, so here, the cats, my guess is, and I don't know a ton about 17th century singerie. Uh, I spoke to one of my colleagues who is also a cat fan and, a, and an art historian of 17th century Spain, and we tried to suss out uh, what the cats may be satirizing. My guess is sort of well-to-do, aristocratic, maybe affluent figures. Aristocratic? Aristocrat- aristocats, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, who are very concerned with grooming, very self-involved, which are the kind of characteristics that many people who are cat haters associate with these animals. And many people who are radical revolutionaries associate with aristocrats. Aristocrats. <laughs> So here in, in Tenier's work, you know, we see the cat being used, again, as, as sort of a, a, a vehicle for satire, a vehicle for mocking. Um, that is quite different from what we see in the next uh, image, uh, which Tina is going to discuss, which is a portrait by Goya. This portrait by Goya actually lives in New York at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, so it's a painting with which Sarah and I are both quite familiar. We often use it when we're leading our students on tours of the Met Museum. Um, It's a fantastic painting by Goya. It's one of the most um, sort of emotionally arresting images um, in the Met galleries of Goya's work. It is a portrait of a young boy. I'm going to call him Manuel Osorio for short. This painting is also known as uh, the portrait of a boy in red, Uh, He's a young boy, uh, maybe of the age of about five or six. Um, He is wearing a lovely uh, red sort of jumpsuit with a white silk sash and a white lace collar and um, white satin or silk shoes. So it's it's pretty obvious that this is a boy of an aristocratic heritage. (laughs) Aristocratic. So, uh, and, and in fact, he is the son of the Count and Countess of Altamiras. So he is, in fact, from a very um, prestigious family. The convention in portrait painting of this time period, you know, the late 18th century, it's from 1787, 1788. Um, Normally the convention would be to show a sitter in a very um, neutral situation, perhaps just sitting in a chair against a um, blank background, or um, perhaps in a a sort of semi-staged environment showing... um, details that tell us something about the sitter's life, like, for example, where they might live or um, the kind of prestige that they might have, you know, where their wealth comes from, uh, references to different parts of the world. Um, This is a very unusual portrait, partly because it is um, just of a young boy, not a a family, uh, sort of a group portrait, but just a young boy isolated from his family. And he is shown against a kind of um, blank background, but he's not seated um, and, and posed as a young child might perhaps be for a portrait he is shown at play but it's he's at a very strange kind of play he is holding in his hands uh, what looks like some sort of leash like a string and um, at his feet there is a bird which is actually a magpie um, with a card in its beak and this card actually bears the signature of the artist of Goya at the boy's feet um, sort of huddling behind him are three cats um, a white one a gray tabby and uh, a black one with yellow eyes, and the black one is standing behind the other two and almost sort of blends into the, the background of the shadow um, against the wall, sort of like emerging from the darkness. And on the other side of the boy's feet, we see a cage. And the, inside the cage, it's a bird cage. It's full of um, small finches. 
And so you have this boy who has this um, very blank expression on his face. He's not really registering anything that's going on at his feet at all. And yet he's inserted into this environment where there is just this incredible sense of, of drama and of menace, right? We're all waiting for these three cats to pounce on the magpie. And then, of course, you have the finches, which are caged, which just makes us feel very uncomfortable, perhaps. Now, the Met Museum informs us that in the Baroque period, when this painting was made, caged birds are actually a symbol of innocence and so we can understand that the boy here is being associated with the idea of innocence but what what do the cats then um, suggest about the boy you know those are are just as close to him as the birds and what they seem to suggest is a kind of evil and that's the evil in the world that the boy will discover and thereby lose his innocence as he gets older and you know we hope that he's not about to learn that lesson like in the next five seconds as he watches his, you know, cats pounce on his pet magpie and and destroy it. Ultimately, as in the case of Barbershop with Monkeys and Cats, cats here are really standing in for something much larger than themselves. They're standing in for human feelings and human emotions. And whereas before they were identified with the aristocracy and are used to kind of lampoon perhaps um, the aristocracy here they're also being depicted with an aristocratic little boy but they're representing not sort of foolishness or vanity but but menace harm evil danger um, the sort of more negative aspects of human emotion the use of cats in this way to represent something that is nocturnal coming from the shadows, something that's negative or menacing is in fact quite common in Goya's work and really throughout the period of um, romanticism that begins um, you know, right around this time and goes into the 19th century. So we have cats uh, representing the aristocracy in the 17th century image. We have cats representing potential danger or evil in Goya's image from the late 18th century. When we move a little further into the 19th century, we come to a work by uh, the French artist Edward Manet called uh, Olympia. And this was a work that uh, was first, it was completed in 1863, first exhibited at um, the Paris Salon in 1865. And there is a cat in this painting. It's off to the side. It's not necessarily the first thing that you see. Uh, It's probably one of the last things you see when you look at this painting. But as we discuss it and talk about some contemporary responses uh, to this work, we'll see how prominent a role it played in that initial reception. This is a painting that has been written about a lot, and we could probably spend an entire episode or five entire episodes talking about why it's so significant, Um, but we're not going to do that. To give a brief overview of this painting, what we see is a young woman, uh, she's starkly naked, laying across this uh, bed or day bed. Uh, She still has her shoes on. Uh, And there's an African maid who's coming into the room, presenting her with a bouquet of flowers. Uh, the, the, The naked figure is staring out at us in an almost sort of aggressive way. And at the right edge of the bed is this black cat with its rear end in the air, its tail kind of sticking up in the air. Um, one thing that is really important to, um, understand when looking at this image, and it's one thing that I love to, uh, it's a question I love to pose to students when I show them this painting for the first time, which is, 
you know, does she look like a Venus? Does she look like a goddess? Does she look like uh, the ty- the types of nude figures that we expect to see in in Renaissance art or in or in um, classical uh, antiquity? And they pretty much immediately say no. And I ask, okay, well, what do you think her job might be? And it takes some coaxing to get them to say what is probably on everybody's mind, which is that she appears to be a prostitute of some sort. Um, and that was very apparent to people who initially saw this painting. Um, she was a sex worker of some sort, though probably a relatively well-paid one based on um, her surroundings, based on uh, the furnishings, based on um, her accessories and um, so forth. So in speaking of, of the, the kind of history of visualization or representation of nude figures, this is actually referencing a very well-known painting of a nude, um, a, a work by the Venetian Renaissance painter Titian uh, that's called Venus of Urbino. Um, it's, it's sort of a similar... Um, a similar composition. You in both paintings, you have this nude female figure. Uh, in Titian's, though, the figure is kind of looking more coyly off to the side. She doesn't have the same um, aggressive gaze at the viewer that Olympia does. Um, in the the Venus of Urbino, there are servants, but they're further in the background. There's not this very apparent um, um, African figure as in Manet's painting and it's actually a dog at the end of the bed uh, in in Titian's painting rather than a cat and the significance of uh, the cat uh, again as I mentioned the cat is not so immediately apparent when you look at this painting but the significance of it uh, was was really lampooned or was really obvious and really lampooned um, in especially in the satirical press when responding to this painting so there were two famous caricaturists. Um, their pseudonyms were Sham uh, and Bertal. And uh, in their caricatures of this painting, they both made the cat much more prominent uh, than we see in Manet's painting. So in both, the cat's tail is much more obviously stiff and erect, um, especially in Sham's uh, caricature. And in Bertal's, the cat has been placed right in front of um, what is obviously anatomically Olympia's pubic area. So we've been talking about prostitution. Obviously, this is a very sexually um, uh, kind of explicit image. And it, you may be thinking, oh, there's another word for cat that also functions as slang for female genitalia. Well, that slang already existed in 19th century France. The, the term chat noir or black cat it was specifically black cat that was um, that that had strong associations with with female sexuality so much so that uh, the writer uh, Emile Zola who was a friend of Manet's and, and Manet did a portrait of him said uh, to have put such a cat into that painting why Manet must have been insane imagine that a cat and a black cat at that so I think that's, that's a clear indication of how obvious the sexual connotation of the cat was to viewers of this painting in 1865, even though it kind of um, almost blends into the background and is off to the side of the painting. The significance of this black cat in this painting becomes all the more apparent if you go back and contrast this work again to Titian's Venus of Urbino, because in that painting you have this small white dog. And of course the black cat is a kind of total inversion of the white dog and as most of you know 
dog, Fido, it comes from the Latin for fidelity. We have a very common association between dogs and um, and fidelity, and this includes in marital situations. So a lot of times in marriage portraits um, from you know Europe and the Middle Ages into the Renaissance and forward, um, you'll see dogs included um, whenever there is a married couple that's represented, and that dog is a symbol of their loyalty to each other, the fact that they um, you know don't stray from their marriage bed, so to speak. And of course here, the, that black cat which, as Sarah pointed out, is already in and of itself a sexualized creature, a, a resonant with sexual slang for a female body part. This black cat works against that white dog to really underscore that what's going on here has nothing to do with any kind of fidelity at all, that in fact this is the direct opposite of being loyal to one's wedded sexual partner, <laughs> um, right, because this is prostitution. As Sarah mentioned, Manet's Olympia is a very important painting in the in the history of art, and particularly because of its relationship to what would develop into modern art of the 20th century. Just as that painting has stayed with us, so has the association, which again predates Manet's work, of the cat with a kind of improper, unbridled feminine sexuality. So the example that I um, think of is um, from Looney Tunes, actually, as a kid growing up watching Looney Tunes after school. If you guys remember Pepe Le Pew, the skunk, he always was trying um, to force himself, basically, if you think about it in retrospect, on Penelope Pussycat. And so she is the beautiful cat who actually doesn't speak, um, but who only sort of makes cat noises. And she uh, was introduced in the 1950s. So this idea... It always happened to get white paint on her to make her look like a skunk, right? Right. And so she she was always mistaken for, uh, you know, Pepe Le Pew always mistook her for a fellow skunk, a female skunk, because of the white paint that she got on her. But she was, um, you know, partially a black cat. In the 1980s, the artist Carly Schneemann, a very important um, performance artist, intermedia artist who began working in the 1960s, tackled this association head-on. Now, in works like Meat Joy or um, Interior Scroll, and I won't get into the specifics about these works, but um, if you are over 18, you can Google them, um, you see her trying to explore uh, feminine sexuality to imagine how... Um, for example, the experience of female orgasm might be depicted in visual culture, in art, since primarily up until that point, the focus had been mostly on male orgasm, right? This is still true of pornography today. Even in the 1960s, cats had shown up in her work, um, in, in the background of her films, for example. In the 1980s, she actually made works explicitly about her cats, and the work in particular that we want to talk about is Infinity Kisses, and these are two series of photographs, and really this the series of work goes on from at least 1981 to 1998, uh, so it's a two-decade project. And what she did is she, you know, throughout this whole period, she had cats, and she kept a small camera next to her bed. And in the morning, her cat would, you know, whichever cat she happened to have at the time, would come and wake her up with kisses, and she would just grab her camera and document that. And so these are, you know, basically candid shots. They're selfies before that that existed. Um, you know, she's taking a picture of herself being licked by her cat in the morning. So she's not able, you know, this is before, you know, we've all had iPhones that allowed us to frame the shot and view what we were seeing. Um, so she's just sort of guessing where to point the camera, and so they're. Um, uh, very sort of casual 
Um, the lighting is always off and weird, right? Because, you know, maybe her partner's still sleeping next to her and she's trying not to disturb. So it's, it's very sort of like um, everyday kind of photography, very casual. Um, but what it's showing is sort of profoundly smart, right? So what it is, it's like, okay, a cat being um, very aggressive and, and licking her awake. And this started with a particular cat she had who basically would French kiss her. And then after that cat died, she got another cat specifically because this cat also seemed to have a proclivity for wanting to to kiss her so that way she could continue her project. Um, and the reason it's so smart is because on the one hand, there is nothing more sort of um, benign and typical and quotidian than a cat you know, licking its owner. I mean, at least this is my experience. My cat is a is a licker. I mean, she just loves to lick. Um, and if you're not careful, yeah, she'll lick you on the mouth. You know, she doesn't really care. Um, you know, I care, but she doesn't right. care. Um, on the other hand, though, because of the the symbolism of the cat, because of the association with female sexuality, the work becomes about something much more than just this very domestic daily routine, this intimate routine. It becomes really about female sexuality and about female sensuality and about, you know, different forms of bonding and different forms of physical connection. And this is not to suggest that she's engaged in any kind of like bestiality or whatever, but that she's documenting a... a form of intimacy with which many of us are familiar, but that is sort of like the love that dare not speak its name for some bizarre reason. Um, so why, what is that bizarre reason? Why is this kind of thing so off limits? And she suggests that it's, you know, because of how sort of uptight we are when it comes to female sexuality. So she's basically taking Manet's black cat and kind of liberating it. And instead of making it represent something dirty and, um, tainted by commerce and something that's perfunctory and it's you know the way that the transaction is described like when you look at Olympia you know that the love is not amorous it's not romantic it's just a financial transaction and it's crude so she's taking that black hat and she's sort of saving it and and um, recuperating it for something that is about a different thing that's much more positive Um, now the trick as she herself has talked about is that there's a very slippery slope between you know trying to use this cat to imagine a kind of female sensuality um, or even female sexuality that is not caught up in like the male gaze and in um, the objectification of the female body, which is exactly what's happening in Menes Olympia, right? I mean, it's very clear that the person who's looking at that painting is supposed to be a man and you are viewing her body in the exact same way that a man who was just walking in to be her customer would view her body, right? And she's looking at you like you are a customer. So it's this very masculine thing, and she's taking that away. She is herself the, the both the subject and the object of these photographs here. So all of that is going on. But it's a very slippery slope between that and something that's just, like, super, like, kitschy or, or cute. And she actually recently wrote an article for the magazine Art in America, this is in February 2015, about this work. And she says, first she talks about the fact that cats um, were originally considered divine in ancient Egypt, and this has to do with the very practical fact that cats would eat the mice and other vermin that would come and get into the grain stalks. So they were, um, you know, really sort of worshipped, right? And so, um, you know, you can come to the Met and view tons of imagery of, uh, you know, hybrid sort of human uh, cat goddesses, etc. Um, Schneemann then goes on and talks about how in medieval Europe they became associated with witchcraft. And 
were actually sort of pursued and hunted and killed and tortured. And this is when cats began to have some of this negative, um, have some of these negative connotations that they um, still have today, that cats are sort of deceitful. And again, you know, in, in all of these negative aspects, they're associated with femininity, right? So they're deceitful in the way that women are deceitful. They're manipulative. They're um, mysterious and into magic in the same way that, that, you know, witches were supposed to be at this time period. Um, so she talks about the persecution of both cats and women who didn't fit into sort of the needs of mainstream society. And she says, the other side of this brutal history is a cloying sentimentality. It's tricky for me to emphasize the power of the cat when what surrounds its hard-to-elucidate power today is sentimental indulgence. I think such ideas are ultimately transformative, however, because the acceptance of the tenderness and thoughtfulness of the cat relates directly to the acceptance of female sexuality, its subtlety, its complexity. In other words, Schneemann ultimately decides that even if um, there is the slippery slope between making images that are about at least as far as she's concerned, accepting, you know, a kind of female sensuality, quote-unquote, its subtlety, its complexity, a slippery slope between that and then, you know, like, images of people with their cats on Instagram that are just sort of mindless, um, that ultimately that that's a good thing because it it shows that people are now accepting the kind of affection and tenderness um, that people have with animals that is an alternative, you know, to... For example, the very um, brutal and violent and mechanistic depictions of sex that we often find in popular visual culture. When Schneemann refers to the quote-unquote sentimental indulgence that is associated with cats, um, she's obviously referring to popular visual culture today in which we have not only lol cats, or LOL cats, um, but also uh, this whole culture of cute and kawaii um, that often uses the cat as its primary symbol. So Hello Kitty, for example. So everything from Hello Kitty up until lol cats today, the cats are often associated with a kind of cuteness, a kind of innocence that is not the same thing as what Schneemann is pursuing in terms of female sensuality and sexuality. It's a, it's benign and, again, um, sort of um, engineered really for um, for male consumption, right? That kind of cute innocence. Just think of the elision between sort of cute cats and then cute, like, Japanese schoolgirls, which always makes me feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> Between the cute culture and uh, the lolcat, you know, meme phenomenon, uh, we have seen a sort of increased fascination with cats in popular culture. At least it feels like that since my own childhood. You know, I grew up with Hello Kitty, and now I just feel like cats are much more uh, mainstream than they ever used to be. And in fact, this phenomenon cats has, are so now. Cats are so now. They're so in right now. Right. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god, cats. Um, <laughs> This phenomenon has even carried over into the art world as there have been a number of recent exhibitions that are devoted to cats. Uh, one that we had at the Met quite recently was the exhibition of Balthus, Cats and Girls, Paintings and Provocations. And so this was a, a show of a recent uh, European painter who often painted exactly as the title suggests, Cats and Girls. There's also an ongoing exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum uh, called Divine Felines, Cats of Ancient Egypt. And I was so excited to go see this show, and unfortunately it's quite small, but it is an entire room that is devoted to this question of what was the symbolic importance of the feline in ancient Egypt? Why were they worshipped, and how were they worshipped, and how did Egyptian art represent 
visually the power and the importance of cats to that culture. In addition to exhibitions of cats in art in sort of mainstream art institutions, we now are also finding exhibitions in mainstream art institutions devoted to the phenomenon of cats online. This would include the uh, Internet Cat Video Festival, which was started by the Walker Art Center in 2012 as an attempt to program a sort of large outdoor field area to, to put something out there that would bring people in. And this has completely metastasized and has become a huge phenomenon that now travels to multiple cities, multiple venues around the country. And actually, uh, one of the venues it traveled to was the State Theater in Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, and a friend of mine is the manager there and, and brought it together. Uh, and I believe his um, profile photo on Facebook still is a picture of him and Lil Bub. Lil Bub even came to to Traverse City for that festival. Right. So part of the phenomenon of the, the Internet Cat Video Festival is that uh, – they have the stars of the cat videos show up. It's basically like, you know, a Star Trek convention, um, but a lol cat convention. So you have, you know, just like the actors would show up at a Star Trek convention. You have um, these cats. Grumpy cat. Grumpy cat and little bub and whatever showing up at at the, and you can, you know, stand in line and get their autograph. And I don't entirely understand what that would entail. But um, anyway, apparently you can do that. And of course now these cats, you know, have, you know, like Grumpy Cat has his own line of coffee and blah, 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 blah. So they've become major brands. And so they travel um, with this cat video festival. And um, apparently the first time it happened, uh, the first time this festival happened, 10,000 people showed up. So it's just an enormous phenomenon. In an essay by Sasha Archibald uh, that has been published on the Walker Art Center's website and also in a brand new book that's just come out called Cat is Art Spelled Wrong, she argues that what we see in the phenomenon of lol cats is the cat actually transforming into something quite other. And uh, this is exactly what Carolee Schneemann was talking about, that the cat used to have these associations with either divine power or with mysticism and magic or with sexuality, and now it's something like far more benign. So uh, Archibald writes that now the cat, quote, is forced to yield its dignity abandon its claims to privacy, and finally acquires a reputation wholly counter to its ancestral roots. The ancient cats of myth, literature, art, and even early 20th century popular culture bear little semblance to today's big-eyed kittens. YouTube speaks a tale of catness thoroughly at odds with feline history. The shift is recent. Even just 200 years ago, cats were operative symbols of qualities antithetic to cute— Magical metamorphosis, potent danger, sexual provocation, and impervious autonomy, end quote. In the same essay, Archibald also discusses a number of the examples that we've cited earlier, including Schneemann and Manet. So if you're interested, we have a link to it up on our website, arthistory.today. Another reason we, we decided to record this, our, this episode now and get it out uh, to you listeners is because there's currently an exhibition up at the Museum of the Moving Image uh, in Queens, New York, in the neighborhood of Astoria that's called uh, How Cats Took Over the Internet, and that's up through January 2016. So this is a, a, a small show, and like uh, the Internet Cat Video Festival, it's it's dealing more with this contemporary phenomenon um, of cat videos and cats on the internet. 
and it really uh, tr it, it does it did a number of things even though or the, the exhibition does a number of things even though um, it's small it's really just one room and then there's kind of a viewing area where they show um, popular examples of, of, of cat videos from the past I don't know 10 or 15 years um, one of the things that it does is uh, kind of trace the evolution of the cat video so going back to really early examples from the history of cinema um, and when we see this this sort of um, cats as a cute phenomenon um, kind of start to emerge um, but another thing that this this exhibition does and it you know it, it traces these videos all the way up to the present bringing in things like uh, like America's Funniest Home Videos and like Tina mentioned the emergence of lol cats and, and um, uh, grumpy cat and all these different phenomena um, but one of the other things that it, it, it that this exhibition does that I think is really interesting is sort of pose the question is cat imagery or cat videos really as big of a contemporary phenomenon as shows like this would have us believe as the internet cat video festival would have us believe and there's a section near the end of the exhibition called looking at the numbers um, that suggests that it's really not as big as we might think they give a number of, of statistics for example the fact that there are relatively equal numbers uh, of photographs on Instagram that are tagged with the word dog as there are tagged with the word cat so it's not that um, cats are necessarily more popular or more visually ubiquitous than dogs and even beyond that that these images the cat and dog images only make up about 0.3 percent of all photos on Instagram so it's a very small uh, proportion of the total photographs that circulate through Instagram they also uh, bring up YouTube and the fact that within YouTube, within that platform, the pets and animal category only accounts for 1% of all video views throughout YouTube. And uh, even within the category of pets and animals, cat videos only are about, only constitute about 16% of the views and dog videos constitute 23%. So there's a significant um, a disparity between those numbers. Of course, we might want to take some of these statistics with a grain of salt. Uh, for example, I, I have a hard time believing that every single cat video that's posted to YouTube is within the pets and animals category. That's I mean, there's true. also humor categories. So, you know, it, it may not be, in, in fact, as low as it, these numbers make it seem, but, but still, it might be the case that the conventional wisdom about the internet is not true, that the internet is not, in fact, 95% pornography and 5% cats. Right. They go on to, or the, the show at the Museum of the Moving Image goes on to pose the question, why are cats so fascinating, even if they don't make up as much of the internet traffic as articles, you know, many contemporary articles and, and um, popular culture would have us believe, they still are very fascinating to many people, and why is that the case? Um, and they give a number of, of, of possible reasons for this. One that I find very interesting and, and very comforting uh, as a cat owner is this notion of the internet as a, a social space for cat owners. You know, uh, if you're a dog owner, you go and take your dog for a walk or go to a dog park, and 
there is that that becomes sort of the venue for socialization, um, not just among dogs, but among dog owners. Cat owners don't really have that possibility. We can't take our cats out uh, to cat parks um, or take them on play dates or anything like that. Although, of course, there is that one very notorious New Yorker who a busker who sort of walks around um, with his cat on a leash sitting on his head. And, you know, just like the people who dress up as the Statue of Liberty or whatever, he makes money because, you know, people from out of town are just amazed that there's a guy walking around with a cat on his head. Ha ha ha. Crazy New Yorkers. Right. And then they take a picture with him. And then he says, you know, can I have a dollar for, you know, letting you take a picture? And I've actually seen him. I mean, you know that you're definitely a New Yorker when you can say you've seen him multiple times in multiple neighborhoods, because I definitely have come across him both in Greenwich Village and at Columbus Circle and I think a couple other places. There is also a guy that I've seen at least twice walking his cat in Central Park. But the broader point is these are the anomalies. These are not the norm. Um, The show then suggests that... um, you know, the, the internet gives, it, it becomes that space, that, that socialization space for cat owners. Um, and also it's, it's sort of um, an empowering platform because it gives a kind of pluralistic voice to cat owners. There are these stereotypes of, of cat owners as being antisocial, as being misanthropic. So the internet gives um, a platform to, uh, for cat owners to kind of counter that perception. And of course, again, it's not simply that cat owners are antisocial and misanthropic. It's that women, especially women who have not married and had children, who have been sort of, you know, had their sexuality properly socialized. Right. right? So the crazy cat lady. Yeah. You don't have crazy cat bachelor men tropes or prejudices. The show offers another explanation for why cats are so compelling to us, especially why um, cats on social media are so compelling, and that has to do with the fact that dogs, which obviously are, are more likely to be trained animals than cats, perform for the camera and are very amenable to being um, filmed. I mean, just think of all like the Hollywood dog actors, you know, who have become really famous, like Air Bud and all those movies, um, that... Uh, they're sort of naturals at it. And so it's not necessarily as gratifying to get a good video of a dog doing something because they just, you know, you say roll over and then they do it and that's your video and that's not very exciting. And that with cats, there's a much greater satisfaction in capturing a cat, like actually being there when the cat does something because, of course, cats don't do anything on command. So the fact that you're able to get that cat video, right, um, is emotionally very satisfying. And we all have this, like, Um, this great satisfaction and there's also a bit of schadenfreude right that Mm. it's like cats are so uh, you know are supposed to be so aloof and independent and um, you know uh, conniving and then we catch them looking stupid or falling down or you know um, just being the opposite of what they're supposed to be and that that's very satisfying for us it's like you know ha you you know don't come to us for affection and don't need us and you know so we relish whenever you look stupid all right Given the seeming ubiquity and popularity of cat videos and cat images and cat memes online, it definitely seems like cats belong very uh, definitely in the realm of what we call visual culture or a sort of popular forms of mass media that aren't necessarily the same thing as art or as fine art. But with institutions like the Walker Art Center um, hosting shows of cat videos or institutions that are devoting uh, shows to cats in fine art, It definitely seems like the boundaries between the high art that deals with cats and the visual culture that deals with cats are starting to become a little bit more uh, porous or permeable. Jillian Steinhauer, a writer for the art website Hyperallergic, who is actually involved with the Internet Cat Video Festival, 
pointed out in her um, article in response to the Cat Video Festival that actually maybe there's a good reason for the Cat Video Festival to be hosted by an arts institution. She writes, quote, if you want your contemporary art museums to do more than show the private collections of rich individuals, engaging with contemporary visual culture seems like a good place to go. Does that mean the walker should spend all or even a large part of its resources on Cat VidFest? No. But they've managed to reach 10,000 people, end quote. Now, of course, my initial response to that uh, is that, well, you know, it's quality, not quantity. And they've reached 10,000 people, but what is it that they've told 10,000 people? And that would be sort of my concern. But I don't think these are questions that uh, Steinhauer, you know, hasn't thought about. I'm not trying to imply that, but just that we we have to be careful and not just think that anything that has a wide audience is necessarily something that can or should be exhibited in the context of an art museum. Um, There are certain things that an art museum can and should do and certain things that perhaps it can not do or that it should not do. And of course, this is a much larger conversation that we're not going to have right now. But um, I just wanted to point that out that um, it's not just that it's populist, because there is um, that and the value of populism, uh, you know, can be debated. Um, But more specifically, I like that she points out that uh, the alternative right now is not that art museums are some are some heavenly space divorced from the reality of popular culture or everyday life or just the real world more generally. Uh, It's the fact that what museums are is profoundly tied into the economy, into the art market, right? So it's the choice is an art video or pure art. The choice is art video or rich person's collection. And that's an oversimplification of the choice, but at least she puts that on the table. And I do think that is a good point that um, we can't think of cat videos as polluting the pristine space of the museum because the museum was never pristine. The museum was always compromised by political ideologies and by the economics of the art market, especially today. So another writer for Hyperallergic, Stephen Burt, in August 2015, interrogated the relationship between high art and popular visual culture in uh, not institutional terms, but theoretical terms. So he, in an article that I can't tell if he's kidding or not, I think he's not kidding, I think he's totally sincere, but he invokes all of the heavy hitters of aesthetic theory to basically put on the table that cat videos might in fact be art. And in fact, not only might they be art, but they might be the most pure form of art. So, okay, before we all, you know, run screaming from the building, hear me out. Um, He has a very interesting justification, and that's that basically, um, and I'm glossing over a lot of aesthetic theory here, which if you want to know more about, you can read his article. We have a link up on our website. Um, But he points out that most notions of art, um, uh, from romanticism all the way through um, the modernist formalism of the 20th century, think about art as something that is um, purposeless, as something that is um, inconsequential, Uh, as something that is purely about form or about itself and not sort of um, tied to any kind of real-world agenda. That's the difference between art and propaganda, for example. As he argues, quote, cat videos have no consequence. They do not matter. They are pure form as their stars seem inconsequential, pursuers of form or else natural artists of instinct. So again, I mean, is he kidding that he says that cats are natural artists? 
um, and that everything that they do seems totally self-motivated and um, totally self-directed and, and not tied to any kind of instrumentalization. It's not about making money. It's just about this sort of pure ethos, living for your art, that basically cats live for their art. They live for themselves and their own purposes like nobody else. Um, so cats are the ultimate artists and maybe cat videos are, ultimate, are the ultimate works of art. As he goes on to say, quote, cat videos like high art are for nothing, do nothing, make nothing happen, embody both a kind of passive reception and a spirit of play. In so doing, they show the thin line between an art that takes us out of this world for play and an art that cannot justify itself, a nihilism that cannot speak its name, end quote. Um, so this is getting into some really heady um, ground, you know, dealing with a lot of aesthetic theory, but um, I, I do like the point that he ends with, which is um, not simply to point out that, um, you know, cat videos are a form of art, but to actually argue that cat videos can teach us something about art. And this isn't necessarily a happy conclusion. What he says is, quote, the time-wasting delight of contemplating art, especially art that doesn't ask much from us, is only a cat whisker or two away from the anomie and the self-accusation of realizing we have wild hours away on nothing, end quote. So, um, Basically, that the act of looking at art, especially art that's not really challenging, which unfortunately is true of a lot of art, is in fact no different than wasting your life watching cat videos online. In this regard, we come to understand that art is in fact a luxury. It is about a luxury of time. And uh, historically, that is the case. And I think that's still true, although museums are now trying to do more outreach and to, to expose more people to art who are not historically from the classes that would have the opportunity and the ability to afford um, looking at art. Despite all that, art still is, is ultimately something that is a luxury. It's, it doesn't help you survive. It doesn't provide food or shelter or clothing. Um, it, you know, is something that is sort of superfluous and meaningless and and cat videos actually help us to understand that about art. They, they make us realize that, which is perhaps an uncomfortable truth. Rather than ending on that note, however, I'd like to, to add up my own kind of repost to what, um, it, what he's arguing, and that's that maybe, you know, maybe cat videos help us understand that art actually is a form of pleasure that, um, and I hesitate to use that word because I, I don't want to regress to some idea that art is just about beauty and about happiness and about a distraction from the pain of everyday life because as anybody who listens to this podcast regularly probably has figured out, I'm really attracted to art that forces us to confront really difficult truths about ourselves or about society um, and that often might be quite ugly, um, both aesthetically and morally. Um, but that said, uh, I guess comparing cat videos to art helps me remember that art is, like watching a cat video, something that can also be a kind of chicken soup for the soul, to invoke a kitschy phrase which, or a kitschy idea, which actually seems sort of very appropriate for this moment. If you'd like to check out any of the images that we've discussed in this episode or any of the articles that we've cited, please go to our website, arthistory.today. Um, we also post a, a lot of updates to stories and other news from the art world on uh, our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash arthistorytoday. And you can also find us on Twitter, uh, and our Twitter handle is arthistoday. It's A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. Mm-hmm.